Um, all right, well, good morning, um, everyone. Uh, for those of you in the room, uh, for those of you online, depending on where you're joining us, uh, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, thank you for joining us at, at ODI. Welcome to this half-day conference on fiscal policy and income inequality. My name is Francesca Bastagli, and I have the, the honor um, and the real pleasure to be chairing today's uh, discussion. I am um, head of research at the Agnelli Foundation, but was up until recently a director of equity uh, and social policy here at ODI. So we'll be today talking about one of the most current and, and hotly debated topics in economic and social policy, namely fiscal policy and, and inequality. Um, and there, there, there are many reasons to be concerned about uh, what's happening to income inequality in countries uh, worldwide. We're seeing persistently high rates of income inequality in some countries, growing inequalities, and there are good reasons to be concerned for, for, for moral um, reasons, but also for more functional ones, if, if that's a concern as well. So in terms of we know how harmful inequality can be for, for growth. Um, so we, we know that taxes and transfers can be very effective in uh, reducing income inequality. We also know that they can Repli replicate or even worse, so exacerbate existing inequalities. And these are the sorts of questions we will be looking at today. They, we know that governments um, can rely on taxes and transfers. It's one of the sets of tools they can use to directly try and shape the distribution and redistribution of, of income. Uh, but we want to understand better, better how they work. ODI has been working on this topic for, for a long time now. It, it mostly do, does two sets of things, really. One is to, to analyze, do research uh, around uh, the design, implementation, and impact of taxes and transfers. ODI also does a lot of work in country, working alongside governments and other actors to understand better and support the process of policy making, the constraints, the realities of um, designing and implementing uh, policy. Today, we'll be uh, asking ourselves two sets of questions, drawing on recent ODI research. One is around, and, and the, so the, the morning is divided into two sessions. Uh, in the first part, we'll be looking at the evidence around the impact of income, um, well, of, of taxes and transfers on income inequality across the income distribution. In the second session, we'll be focusing on the question of gender inequality. So whether and in what ways fiscal policy influences uh, gender inequality in terms of the gaps and in, in, in differences in income between men and, men and women. For each session, we'll start with a short presentation by the ODI researchers that have been uh, working on, on the papers, on the recently published papers on these topics. And then we'll have a, a discussion uh, bringing in the panelists, expert panelists that have agreed to join today. And we're very grateful for, for those that have joined both in the room at ODI and online. We will then also have open up to questions, questions from the audience in the room. Also, for those of you online, please do submit your questions via the chat. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be taking them as they come through uh, and addressing them, posing them to our speakers in the room um, uh, during the Q&A. Uh, a quick word around of thanks, really. Uh, one is to to those that have that are enabling, making this work possible in terms of the funding and, and broader support. So, in particular, the Bill, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, both of the studies, two of the studies we're hearing from today, are, are made possible by their their funding. 
and support. And also, um, much of the work is also done in collaboration with the Center for, this is for tax debt, I always forget the entire name, um, but the Center for Tax Analysis in Developing Countries Tax Dev at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And we have some colleagues from the IFS in the room today. So, so thank you to them. Uh, a word of thanks also to Hazel Granger, who couldn't be with us today, but is the one of the leads or the main coordinator of this work at ODI. She's a senior research fellow at ODI. Um, she's also obviously helped and, and, and took the lead on organizing the event. So shout out to, to Hazel. I uh, hope to see you soon. Uh, so let me I better stop talking. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce the panel. We have for two, this is for session one. We'll start with session one. First, the two presenters, Laura Bramowski, senior well, research associate at ODI and at the Institute for Fiscal Studies and co-author of the paper on fiscal policy and income inequality, which I hope you've seen. Um, you, you will certainly find it at the ODI website. And Kyle McNabb, also ODI research associate and lead on all the work around employment income taxes on that data set and co-author of the study on personal income tax that we'll be hearing more about. We then have online, I believe, Andara Kamara, economist at the African Development Bank. Um, we have in the room, Yuka Fritilla, professor of public economics at the University of Helsinki and non-resident research fellow at UNU Wider. And Miguel Nino Zalazua, senior lecturer in development economics at SOAS at the University of London. So we'll start with the presentation by Laura and Kyle. I'll hand that over to you before we then open up the discussion. Laura. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for being here in person and everyone online uh, for joining us to discuss these very, very important issues. Um, I'm going to present very briefly um, our findings of reviewing evidence on the impact of fiscal policy on income inequality and poverty. It's a vast topic and I'm going to probably simplify many things, but I hope it gives you some very broad idea and very good pointers of important issues to discuss in more detail later. Um, so I, I want to start to thinking about why we, um, why income inequality matters. And I think Francesca already mentioned that there are moral considerations and social preferences um, that, that varies across countries. Some countries place more um, weight on, on societies being more equal than others. It also matters for political stability. And we have seen recently how income inequality can play out generating instability in many uh, countries, uh, but also instrumentally, um, it can affect efficiency and economic growth. So there is, um, there has been a lo long-standing belief that income inequality, some inequality or income inequality didn't matter for growth, and some of it was beneficial for economic growth um, among many economists and um, other practitioners. But actually, there is increasing evidence that shows that high inequality may undermine economic growth, and actually. We should, stay, we should pay more attention to, to this. Um, another important uh, point I want to make is that fiscal policy is not a silver bullet to address income inequality and poverty, um, but it's still a very powerful tool. And how you design the system, both on the taxes and transfers uh, point of view, and 
each instrument in particular and how they interact with each other matters a lot in shaping poverty and income inequality outcomes. So what we do in our report that is um, available, as um, Francesca said, online and some hard copies here, is to review available evidence on the combined and individual impact of taxes and transfers on within country income inequality and poverty. So we are abstracting from uh, cross-country inequalities, which are also very important, but we are not focusing on those today. Um, we cover a large number of countries with very varying levels of income and development, and we aim to draw policy lessons, um, what it means for tax and transfers. Um, okay, so this is the only graph you will see in my presentation. I hope you can see it properly. Um, so what this graph is showing is how the level of inequality before and after tax and transfers varies across countries. So the main point you can take from this graph is that tax benefits or cash transfers and in-kind transfers in education and health can reduce income inequality by a big um, proportion. And how do we read this graph is in the horizontal um, axis, you have the, a measure of income inequality before tax and transfers, and zero, the lower the, the measure, the Gini coefficient, the, the more equal the distribution of income is, and the higher up to 100, the higher the, the, higher the inequality is. So we start with the market income Gini coefficient that is before any tax and transfers intervention today. And then we look at the Gini coefficient in, this, in, in final income after this uh, fiscal policy. And what we see is that all countries that are considered in this study are below that diagonal line, which would mean if you are on that diagonal line, you would the fiscal policy wouldn't make any difference. If you are above, is making it worse. If you are below, it's lowering income inequality. So all of them are below the diagonal line. It varies significantly across countries, um, even within country income growth. So the different colors of uh, the dots and country labels are, represent what type of income group that country belongs to. And you can see there is a lot of variation. Um, and that tells us that even within a given level of development, policy choices matter substantially. And, and that's something very powerful to take away. So you can change how you design the system and affect income inequality. So I'm not going to talk about the type of data now because we don't have a lot of time, but we can take it up if anyone is interested um, later. What I want to also show you is thinking about the different uh, country income groups, how the contribution of fiscal policy to in reducing income inequality varies um, on average across uh, country income groups. So we see that fiscal policy has a larger impact on income inequality in the higher the income uh, the country has. And we see the reduction in the Gini coefficient. So that table shows the proportional change so in higher income countries, fiscal policy reduces the, that measure, the Gini coefficient measure of income inequality at 22% uh, 
uh, reduction, whereas in lower income countries, that is 8%, and there is variation in between. And this is related um, to the size of the state that I'm not going to discuss here in detail, but again, we can pick it up later, and um, how these different instruments um, operate in, in, across countries. Um, so which type of instruments uh, do, are we talking about and how do they contribute to this reduction in income inequality and how this varies across income groups? So we see that the redistribution is done by direct taxes, mostly personal income tax on earned income and cash transfers and in-kind transfers. Here we are talking about services, education and, and health services provided um, by the government. And indirect um, taxes and subsidies have no effect when considered as a whole. One very important uh, point that we need to take into account when thinking about fiscal um, policy and, in, and, and how it affects income inequality and income poverty is that changes in inequality do not have to, don't always mean changes in poverty levels at all. And um, in several countries, uh, net payers to the fiscal system start in the extreme poor or poor income groups. And that's quite sizable in lower income countries. It's something that Kyle will pick up uh, after I finish this presentation and will zoom in on his work on personal income tax and how this affects um, income inequality in African countries. But many poor pay personal income tax, and that's because of the, how it's designed and it can be changed. And you don't have good system to compensate them through the cash transfer. So that's um, something that potential for improvement. What I have done here, and I don't think I have time to go into a lot of detail, but I just wanted to give you a flavor of what we discuss at length in terms of evidence in the report is to, to think, okay, so fiscal policy is a powerful tool and what are the different instruments we have on the taxes and on the transfer side and how we can think about them to improve uh, progressivity while also thinking about revenue collection um, on the taxes side. So as I said, personal income tax, Kyle um, would talk about it in more detail Corporate income tax is something that is very difficult to model how this, who pays in terms, who, which, the, which individuals or households pay ultimately corporate income tax. There are increasing number of, of um, um, studies and the evidence is inconclusive, but this is a very important instrument as well in terms of generating revenues for government and also in how it interacts with personal income tax and how people at the top of the income distribution may choose to operate legally to pay, uh, decide whether to pay personal income tax at top rate or corporate income tax in, where usually is lower. And this is generating a lot of debate. Again, we can pick it up at a later in, in the discussion a bit more, but something that we need to be thinking about as well. Um, we discussed property taxes. The evidence varies in terms of where it's progressive or regressive, and it depends a lot on 
how this instrument is implemented, it has potential to be a progressive tax that is efficient and, and um, but you also have to think about how you implement it in a way that doesn't impose a high burden on income poor households today. So there a lot of parameters one has to take into account when designing and implementing property taxes as well. One last thing I would say about taxes, how many minutes do I have? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I have more things to say then. So uh, in terms of value-added taxes, so we um, the evidence in terms of impacts on income distribution, not on consumption expenditure distribution, but on income, is that it is uh, regressive and it also affects um, um, poor households more and make them poorer. But actually, this um, is not so much the case in countries where there are very high levels of informality in um, consumers' markets. So there is very often the case that most of the people on lower income um, households in, in non-high income countries purchase their goods uh, and some of their services from very informal unregistered businesses and hence the incidence of VAT there is quite different to the incidence of VAT in uh, countries where most of the consumers purchases in, from VAT register and, and this has implications for how do we think about VAT and it's in regressive and um, impact. But at the same time, VAT is a very powerful source to collect, to, to, to raise revenues, and can be a very powerful, um, very important in terms of fun, financing more proper progressive spending. Um, and I will come back to this at the end, uh, the importance of taking the system as a whole. Excise, there's a lot that can be done. It's not clear. It depends on the good and the consumption patterns across the income distribution of the, this, who is consuming more or less these goods. And there are many areas for improvement and to use better these taxes to um, tax socially harmful goods like uh, tobacco or fuel, uh, even transitioning from fuel subsidies to fuel taxes to, to tackle environmental costs. There is also issues with custom. I don't have time to go through that, but we can talk about it yet later. Um, and in terms of cash transfers, so cash transfers are in all the evidence in all the contexts shows that it is progressive, it's equalizing and it um, lowers poverty rates. Uh, but of course, it will depend the actual impact um, and whether there is room for improvement on the context, on the size of the of the cash transfer program, on the ability of the government to be able to target um, um, lower income households or not, on the decision of whether to make these cash transfers universal or targeted. So, for example, from what we have um, reviewed, it does even though universal transfers in very um, attractive for many different reasons, social justice, but also in terms of uh, social insurance in a world where work is becoming much more um, volatile. Um, it's not clear that countries are ready yet to provide and finance 
universal cash transfers um, in a sustainable way. And so given these resource, this resource constraints, it's important to think that maybe it's better to start with targeting to the, those most vulnerable. Um, indirect subsidies, again, vary a lot the impact. They usually are not well targeted to help the poor. Um, and there is a lot of debate about how you think about packages of reforms where you um, remove these subsidies. And if you are affecting lower income um, households, compensate them at the same time with cash transfers. Um, in higher income, uh, income transfers in general are progressive and pro-poor. And in non-higher income countries, there is a lot of room for expansion of access and, and of quality of the services uh, to improve outcomes uh, across the income distribution. Um, so what are the main takeaways? I would say um, indirect tax remains an important uh, revenue raiser. And the design and implementation can be improved along many dimensions uh, that I haven't mentioned in detail, but never mind. We'll again discuss probably later. Um, there is this perceived trade off between revenue mobilization and equity uh, that is not helpful. And there are benefits of more progressive income taxes. Uh, and protecting the corporate income tax uh, base and revenues. There are benefits from increasing uh, excise duties uh, to tackle health and environmental externalities in ways that are good for economic growth, development, um, and uh, income inequality. As I mentioned before, it's important to think about packages of reforms. So for example, use cash transfers to compensate losers uh, in when removing um, inefficient fossil subsidies, for example. And it's also important to think about tax systems. So thinking about policy, but also thinking about administration and how these two interact with each other. I think this is my last one. one very important aspect we emphasize um, a lot in our uh, report is the importance of bringing taxes and transfers together when thinking about how to tackle income inequality and poverty using the fiscal system. So not every instrument has to be equalizing pro-poor on the tax or on the spending side. We have to think about the system as a whole and the net impact of the system on uh, these outcomes. Uh, and this matters a lot when thinking about how to raise revenue, encourage economic growth and development, but also tackling income inequality at the same time. And this relates to this idea of the whole of government approach. So it's important that these type of decisions are not taken in, at the government level in silos without policymakers talking to each other. So it's important to try to think how we, how, how this can, this type of debate can facilitate a better dialogue between the different parts of government to achieve shared goals 
uh, as a whole. There are, of course, issues about political economy and how this, how, how we need to think uh, as uh, practitioners and policymakers, academics, researchers, how do we engage with those challenges uh, that are sometimes left on the side when talking about quantitative evidence, uh, for example. And they are really, really important to, to consider when thinking how to go from research to impact. The other very important and, uh, issue to consider is social contracts. So we have been talking about taxes and transfers and how citizens engage with the, with the state. And I think this, for, in many countries, particularly lower income countries, but increasingly, as we have been seeing recently in higher income countries, there is there are issues of trust and there are issues of um, lack of transparency and accountability uh, between the citizens and the state. And for all this to work, we, we have to, um, this, there has to be a level of trust between citizens paying money into a government that is going to be used well for the purpose that governments say they are going to be using it. And, and so there is very high need to improve those institutions and everywhere, but I think in, in, in some countries more than others. And in doing so, I think it's important also to use consensus and, and, for, and, and foster this consensus through communications, through a lot of work with stakeholders um, that are part of this policy decision making process. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Wonderful. Thank you for the, for the very clear overview of the evidence and then the, of the policy implications that are emerging. We'll be coming back to many of these issues, I'm sure. I'll hand over to, to Kyle to hear more about the personal income tax. Thanks very much. Um, can the slides come back so that I know what I'm talking about? Um, so Laura's obviously given a really good overview of the sort of system of taxes and transfers and how each of those instruments contribute or don't contribute to um, the the reductions in income inequality. Um, the work that um, is the clicker work. The work that I'm going to talk about sort of very much zooms in on one of those instruments, and that's the personal income tax. And specifically, it zooms in on on the the the, the personal income tax in in African countries, and that's a region where we we know comparatively less about the effects of each of these sorts of instruments on on income inequality. Um, when you think about the personal income tax and its its capacity or its potential to affect inequality outcomes in lower or middle income countries, um, you might think about things like the fact that a lot of people earn very low incomes. There's large amounts of informality, which means inversely a small formal labor force, um, revenue authorities that maybe don't have the administrative capacity to administer that tax on large swathes of the population. And all of those are very valid concerns and very valid reasons for why the personal income tax perhaps isn't as effective an instrument in low and middle income countries at tackling inequality as it is in other parts of the world. Um, what we focus on is sort of a fourth um, sort of facet of the personal income tax, and that's the way it's designed or the policy design, as in what does the rate structure look like? Where's the, where's the tax-free threshold set, et cetera, et cetera. And we wanted to ask, um, how does the policy design affect the capacity for the, re the personal income tax to be an effective redistributive instrument um, in African countries? Um, 
This is really important um, for a number of reasons. For example, to ensure that those on very low incomes are not taxed heavily. Um, in some work we did last year with Hazel, we found that in one in five countries in this sample, um, if you were in a formal sector job and your salary was less than or equal to the $1.90 a day poverty line, you would still be taxed on that salary according to the design of personal income taxes. Um, it's also important to ensure that those on higher incomes are taxed appropriately. Um, and that perhaps involves striking a balance between raising revenue from those on high incomes, but also not creating large disincentives for them to hide that income, uh, to restructure it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what we do is we, um, we combine data um, from a data set, the employment income tax data set that we put together um, through TaxDev and ATUDI, and with data on income distributions from across African countries from the World Inequality Database. And we essentially simulate what if we apply the personal income tax to um, the income distribution in each country on the African continent for roughly the last two and a half decades. Um, we find that by design, it is pretty progressive, um, but there's definitely room for improvement. So there's a wide range of results. And we find that in, I think Somalia is the country where it has the smallest effect, um, or we find the smallest um, level of progressivity to um, Cote d'Ivoire, where um, we find a reduction of inequality of about 17%. And that's a proportional change in Gini coefficients between the pre and post tax uh, Gini coefficients. Um, so we, we, we model the redistributive capacity of the tax by design. So we have to make a few assumptions in the work that we do. And obviously things like informality and administrative capacity and top incomes, um, as I mentioned, are very important reasons for why in reality, the tax may not be as redistributive as some of the simulations we make. Um, but when we start to decompose those effects, we find that um, what seems to matter most for ensuring that the personal income tax is a or an effective redistributive instrument is the level at which the top rate is set and the point in your, in your earnings where that applies. Um, crucially, um, one of the major findings that came out of the work that we've done is that when we've studied reforms to the personal income tax, so this data set allows us to observe every time there was a change in the legislation around what the personal income tax looked like, and um, we find very strong evidence that on average reforms during this period have actually lessened the ability of the personal income tax to be a redistributive instrument um, on the African con continent. Um, so to show you a very quick example of that um, on the screen, um, this is only one graph I'm going to show you. It's a scatter plot that shows the difference between pre and post tax inequality uh, in Cameroon. I'm not picking on Cameroon specifically. It's not the worst, um, not the worst offender or not um, the only country in the sample where this comes out. Um, all you need to know here is that the lower the dot is for each year, so from left to right goes from 1995 to 2020, for each year, the lower the dot is, the more equalizing is the effect of the personal income tax by design. In 2003, Cameroon um, changed, uh, reformed its personal income tax. Um, it lowered the top rate, it reduced the number of bans, and a, num a number of other things were changed. And what happened was, according to our simulations, the redistributive capacity fell um, quite drastically. Um, and this is very typical of what we see across the sample time and time again, and that reforms have pointed in this direction, making by design the personal income tax a less effective instrument um, at redistributing across the sample. So it's an incredibly rapid run through some of the results that we've taken up. Um, in terms of conclusions and setting this in context against what Laura's already presented, um, looking at the policy design of the personal income tax, that's just one feature on one instrument in the whole sort of system of taxes and transfers. Um, but we think it's an important one and it can have significant impacts on inequality and even poverty. Um, and that's even in the face of, of high informality. Um, 
it's very likely that in a lot of low and middle income countries, um, they may have taken the decision to just design a simple personal income tax to raise as much revenue as possible. And should there be government preference for redistribution through cash transfers, et cetera, et cetera, they may have focused on that. And um, you definitely don't have to achieve all of your inequality reductions with the personal income tax. It's just one instrument. Um, but we do sort of feel that there's a, there's a few guiding principles that could probably be adhered to. Um, so for example, ensuring that the personal income tax by design does not make the poor poor. So someone on a very low income, should they have a formal job offer, perhaps it's not a great policy design if, if they are taxed on that income. Also, as I mentioned before, adequately taxing those on top incomes, trying better to strike that balance uh, between collecting as much revenue as possible, but not creating huge disincentives uh, for that income to be underreported. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, thank you too for, for this, this um, review of the personal income tax and, and of some of the issues and sort of tensions or trade-offs that one faces around questions of the design and, um, and, and then the impacts of, of personal income tax. So we've heard from the, the researchers and around the, about the recent um, work that's been going on. And I'd like to now pass on to our distinguished panelists. Uh, we also have Andara on, online, welcome. Uh, good to see you. So we can, we can see you on the screen, uh, but I'll start first, I'll turn to Miguel just coming back to a broader question around um, based also on your work and and on the, and, on the, and building on what we've just heard uh, if you could if you could um, talk us through again or anyway going back to your work talk us through where you think in which countries or which reasons regions progress has been made uh, in making fiscal policy more more progressive and using what uh, policies or channels yeah, <clears throat> thank you, Francesca. So um, can I just maybe share some, some slides just to make <clears throat> the discussion a bit uh, maybe easier for everyone to follow? So um, let me just go ahead. I will look at my screen because I don't see anything there. <clears throat> but um, I just wanted to show you this uh, a chart which in a way simplifies the way in which different policies impact inequality. You know? so, yeah, different levels of inequality. And of course, we have been discussing very much final income inequality, which is after taking into account social services, transfers, and taxes. But in fact, different policies affect income inequality at different levels of the concept, right? So in the next session, we will be discussing the issue of gender. So it's very important to also look at how, for example, labor uh, policies and education policies as well impact redistribution and inequality at different levels of, of, of the, the, the concept of income inequality. So, of course, we've been discussing um, how transfers and taxes impact uh, final income inequality. And here, the chart, in a way, tries to explain the channels, the direct channels and the indirect channels, uh, the indirect channels that are shown by the dot uh, lines in a way explain the behavioral effects that these policies have on, on inequality. But now after going through these basic uh, conceptualizations, we can see in this table, for example, how the Gini coefficient is affected by different concepts of income inequality once you introduce different policies. No? So if you look at, for example, this chart, 
we move from market income inequality before taking into account, for example, education, labor market policies, taxation and redistribution through transfers, you see how inequality goes down to final income, which is the way in which normally we get our money, right? So after taking into account all the services that we receive as well as after paying taxes. And you will see in this chart, the percentage change uh, from final income to market income. No? So you see the countries that have made in the last round of data that we have the, let's say the largest uh, progress towards reducing inequality no? through different policy instruments. And here we have Argentina, South Africa, usually middle income countries, right? So you, you can see that. And, and just maybe focusing a bit more on, on, on Argentina, you can see different kinds of policy designs that they implemented over the years to tackle high income inequality. And of course, if you look at the Gini coefficients, are still really, really high compared to other uh, high income uh, countries. So nevertheless, for example, they implemented, for example, a number of tax brackets and adjusted income tax rates that have an impact on reducing income inequality. So also implemented some changes to corporate taxation, um, also implemented some adjustments in income thresholds and rates of social security contribution. And also they have done some work on tax evasion policies, which is something that we haven't discussed so much, but there are massive tax uh, uh, gaps in, in these areas. And also there's a lot of tax evasion and tax avoidance in, in developing countries. And, and if we look at this table and just compare um, the, the country that has made the most progress on these areas and the least one, which is Guatemala in our sample, you can see by looking at the composition of the concentration shares of different components, over the, the, the income distribution, if you decide, divide the income distribution by deciles, you can see how different components of taxes and transfers have impacted income inequality. No? And you can see here, so how, for example, indirect subsidies benefit the better of households, which is something that we haven't discussed much. You know? So it's not just about taxation and expenditure, but also about how subsidies, which tend to be in many contexts, highly regressive, as you can see in both contexts here, no? And uh, you know, for example, health expenditure is highly um, regressive in Guatemala, whereas in, in Argentina tends to be more progressive, no? So there are a lot of elements that contribute substantially to the way in which uh, countries um, have seen success in reducing inequality. But one of the final things I wanted to mention is that if you look at personal income tax, which has been discussed extensively now. In fact, if you look at the history, not just the last decade, but you look at the history of the trends of, of personal income tax, across the board, in personal income tax has been on, on the decline. No? So there have been efforts to increase personal tax income in certain contexts, but still over, overall, there is a massive reduction in the tax rates. And this is something that, yeah, I just want to put on the table. Thank you. Thank you very much, Miguel. And Dara, turning to you, a, a similar question, but based on your experience in your work in Ghana and now at the African uh, Development Bank, whether you could talk us through some of the, the opportunities and areas for potential for governments in, in African countries to strengthen the progressivity of their tax and wider fiscal system. 
taking into account the, the kind of um, trends that we've already heard about um, and, and also tax gaps that we've heard about by previous speakers. Okay, can everyone hear me? Yes. Perfect. Um, so um, for me, there are three policy opportunities that could be potential um, areas for Ghan the Ghanaian government to look at as part of measures to strengthen, you know, the progressivity of the tax system. And um, I'm going to, it's, it's, for me, it's a three-pronged approach. So I'm going to be talking about um, broadening the tax base, um, property taxation, and um, high net worth individuals. So um, Ghana has a population currently of over 30 million people. And in this population, less than 10%, which is 3 million people pay income taxes. And over the last few years as well, um, personal income tax revenues haven't increased relative to GDP. And this is obviously highlighting the challenges of improving um, and tax enforcement and compliance um, on individuals in an, a highly informal economy like the Ghanaian one. And this has also led to an increase in the tax gap. Um, so what I propose is that financial inclusion measures should be vigorously promoted um, within the informal sector to make a lot of entrepreneurs in that sector bankable. Because if firms are saving with banks, they are more likely to pay tax, and that is going to contribute to lowering the tax gap. Um, additionally, Ghana has a very high mobile phone penetration. So um, the Revenue Authority can also consider partnering with telco, telcos um, so that mobile phone technology, mobile money technology especially, can be um, deployed in the collection of taxes. And this is good because it contributes to expanding the tax base. And, um, and for property taxation, um, currently, Ghana doesn't have a property tax because we operate a property rate system. And this system is administered by um, our local authorities, which are known as uh, Metropolitan Municipal and District Assemblies. And the collections from this um, are not part of central government's revenues. So that, and the tax base is um, also um, assessed by um, the Lands Commission, our Lands Commission here. So the challenges, um, some of the challenges the MMPAs face is having the limited technical capacity to administer these taxes. First of all, they don't even do the evaluation of the taxes and then you know, they don't have enough staff to even collect these taxes. So there's an opportunity to transfer the administrative responsibility of collecting these taxes from the MMBAs to the Revenue Authority because GRA, um, apart from being the, having the institutional expertise to facilitate the efficient um, assessment, billing and collecting of these taxes, um, also um, is by, mandated by law, I believe, to advise the MMBAs on their assessments and the collection of their revenues. And I feel like this would be a good thing because um, it's going to contribute to central government's revenues if the Revenue Authority starts to collect these um, property rates now. Um, my third point is on um, high net worth individuals. So um, there's a lot of growth in and profitability in sectors such as the extractives and the financial services, right? But as I said earlier, um, personal income tax hasn't increased in the same manner as the growth in these um, sectors. So uh, currently our top um, marginal rate for PIT is 35% for incomes exceeding 600,000 CDs annually. And I believe 600,000 CDs is approximately um, 41,000 pounds. I mean, I could be wrong, but I will check. Um, so the, the Revenue Authority um, has set up a high net worth unit, which is focused on identifying high net worth individuals using 
um, information from um, institutions such as the Revenue Authority itself, um, our controller and accountant general's department, um, the registrar's commission where people register their businesses, the lands commission where people register their lands, and then our driver and vehicle licensing authority where people register their cars. And GRA um, is trying to use the information gotten from these institutions. There are many other institutions, I'm just mentioning a few, to um, identify high net worth individuals. So um, unfortunately, the challenge here is that um, there's not a lot of administrative tax return data all the time. So you can't even identify people properly. And if you can't identify someone, how do you um, say they are high net worth and then you know, make sure they are paying the amount of taxes they are supposed to be paying? Um, so, and then in cases um, where we also have data, the data is so fragmented. So you can't even triangulate it and say pinpoints who is a high net worth individual. And the triangulation is very important here because a lot of people's wealth in Ghana is not always in the banks. People have wealth maybe land-wise. So you, need, you want to be able to say who has what so you are able to know if they are paying their fair share of taxes. Um, so maybe a solution here would be for the revenue authority to digitize tax returns and then maybe probably employ big data analytics in the triangulation of data so they are better able to target um, high net worth individuals. And um, um, Laura spoke about transfers and her presentation, so I wanted to touch briefly on that as well. Um, so in, in a place like Ghana, transfers have a very mixed distributional impact. And, um, and I was, I'll give an example of one of, the, um, um, one of the progressive ones we have here, well, supposed, supposedly progressive ones we have here. It's called LEAP, which is the Livelihood Empowerment Against Poverty Program. And it's, 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 it's progressive in that it, it targets the bottom 20%. But then the foundation of any efficient and effective cash transfer scheme, right, is that um, you want a system that has good identification and an addressing system. And, and without that, you, you are not able to target the people who are most vulnerable and who are most in need of these kind of transfers. Um, the Ghanaian economy is very highly informal. So um, a lot of people in the informal sector where the most vulnerable are, are not, don't have addresses. And they are in, in a lot of ways also not connected to the financial sector. So if someone is not connected to the financial sector, how are they supposed to be, you know, receive any kind of cash transfers from government. Um, having an ID and an address um, and being part of the financial system are interconnected. Unfortunately, we don't have that on a large scale now. So what government does here is mostly um, a blanket pro poor um, intervention. And examples of these are the free senior high school um, intervention we have now. And then we've also got a free national health insurance. And these um, interventions are great, but then the issue is that they just don't target they target everyone and just don't actually target the people who are most in need of these kind of um, transfers. Thank you very much. Thanks, Azar. Very interesting and helpful to hear about the Ghanaian experience. So, you come turning to you and coming back to the personal income tax uh, stories. So we've heard about some of the constraints uh, that particularly low income countries face linked to, to low incomes um, in terms of its capacity to use uh, personal income tax, but also potential opportunities that like we've just heard from Andara to try and, and, and um, tax better, you know, high net worth individuals. So opportunities there. Based on your work and experience, what, what are the options and opportunities going forward? And, and what are the alternatives if low-income countries cannot for now rely on, on personal income tax? Yeah, thank you. Uh, and by the way, thank you also for these excellent reports. Uh, I very much agree on, on what, what was said there. So um, first on the, 
on the personal income tax. So um, uh, yes, I agree, it still has a role to play. Uh, so, um, uh, and I have an example from Uganda where some 10 years ago, the Ugandan government increased so uh, the progressivity uh, via lowering the tax rates on the, on the lower middle income earners and then increase the top tax rate from 30 to 40%. And um, together with colleagues, we, we examined the, um, the, the impacts of this on reported incomes, because the worry can be that the, because of higher, higher tax rates at the top, then the top, the top income earners would be reporting lower incomes. And after the empirical analysis, we found out that the, yes, the, uh, the reform was actually successful in terms of reducing inequality mightily. Uh, uh, and it also raised the revenues that the government collected. Uh, so even after taking into account these behavioral reactions, so that the fact that the revenues can, can react, we found that the, that the current 40% top tax rate is not built uh, about the revenue maximizing one. So I suppose that the general message is that the um, countries which have lower rates could perhaps consider raising those. And the second point, uh, I would like to make is the um, is that I would like to repeat the point made by Laura earlier that the, it's the entire package that matters. So cash transfers are very effective in, in reducing poverty and inequality, even if they uh, would have to be financed by uh, uh, indirect proportional taxes. Uh, and they don't always have to be targeted in a very fine-tuned proxy means manner because there's research showing that the even simple targeting like categorical targeting, meaning that the transfers would go to households with certain demographic groups like uh, uh, households with young children or households with older members, can be almost as, uh, as good in terms of poverty reduction as, 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 as proxy means transfers. And also now, uh, in the aftermath of the, of the pandemic, we know that the crisis can actually change the profile of the poor. And if that happens, then that's an argument, other things equal, uh, for a, a little bit less targeting in the first place. And finally, uh, the third point I would like to make is also something that was mentioned in the, in the slides or on the slides, and that's related to uh, uh, broadening the tax base by making uh, avoidance and evasion harder. And the way to do this is, in a sense, a kind of technical fix. So better utilization of um, uh, ICT, uh, uh, more third-party reporting via banks, for example, uh, that the information is then shared by the revenue authority, and then there's a there's an alternative uh, route to information to what the taxpayers pay. So all this um, can actually help raise revenues, make the tax base broader. And um, technical assistance there by, uh, by uh, revenue authorities who have been doing this for, for a longer period of time can, can actually be also helpful in terms of speeding up the process in, in lower and lower middle income countries to, to improve the, the tax base. Thank you, Yuka. So some very promising um, options and opportunities here. 
I, I want to take another round of questions before we open up to the to the audience. Uh, but in the meantime, for those of you online, please do submit questions if, if you have any via the chat that I'll pick up in a minute. But just a round of questions to our three speakers and starting going back first to, to Andara around the issue of distributional analysis and the utilization of the findings of distributional analysis. So there, there are questions around the, the well, methodology and empirics of uh, estimating the incidence and impact of alternative tax and transfer tools. We, we are, many of us are well aware of the kind of challenges we face, both from a more theoretical perspective and the reality of, of the data, for instance, on the ground. Could you talk us through, in, in your experience, so for instance, in the case of Ghana and your work there, um, around your experience in promoting and supporting distribution analysis, the, the sort of findings that emerge, and, and whether, and, and if so, how findings were, were used by, by the government there? Yes. Um, so um, I'm going to start with a quick overview of the kind of um, distribution analysis model we had. Um, so we, the tax policy unit introduced the analysis so we could better understand the impacts of tax policies on different types of households. Um, and this was because we wanted to propose tax policy prescriptions that were aimed at raising revenue in ways that were equitable, efficient, and had the least distortionary effects. So the micro simulation that we developed to do this is called GATAX. Um, and it facilitated the analysis of distributional impacts of tax policies on households ranging from the poorest to the richest in 10 different deciles. And GATAX covers a little over 76% of tax revenues in Ghana and selected cash um, benefits which are paid by the government. Um, and the data that underpins the GATAX model is the 2016 and um, 2017 Ghana Living Standards Survey, which um, is a household survey that collects disaggregated welfare and living condition statistics. And um, it also, the model also uses the 2015 social accounting matrix, which provides an overview of Ghana's production structure. And um, some of the assumptions that were built into the model um, included a constant level of tax compliance, if I remember correctly, for all households, and then also we didn't have any um, response or in consumption or production in the model. Um, and what the model did for us was that it produced revenue and expenditure analysis um, and the impacts of tax reforms relative to a certain baseline that we had in the model. And also for the impact of um, on households, it produced changes in tax and benefits, both, um, both in cash and in proportional terms um, across the different um, income ranges by just, um, region, household composition, and if the household was rural or urban. Um, so some of the main, one of the main challenges we had with the GAT tax was it, it surrounded, it included the uncertainty around the data that we're using. Um, so um, first off, GAT tax wasn't able to model in-kind transfers. As I mentioned earlier, much of the revenue raised by governments is, redistrib is distributed in other means by, um, instead of cash. So we have like public health, like the NHIS, as I mentioned, and then education, which is a free SHS, um, free second senior high school. Um, the distributional impacts of expenditures, they are very crucial for understanding how progressive a fiscal system is. And GATAX, so GATAX focuses just on the revenue raised. The uncertainty with the um, income tax data was that um, uh, there was, the, the, our main concern was the quality of the data for some of the observations because 
of misreporting in the raw survey data, which underpinned the model we're using. And the thing with um, misreported data is that a huge outlier distorts the kind of results you get from, um, it, it has an overall um, effect on the taxes. So all, although the aggregate um, assumptions default, they do all on, the default assumptions do well on an aggregate, the uncertainties, we needed to keep them in mind when modeling direct taxes so that we don't overestimate or underestimate the progressivity of the system. And then um, another thing was that um, we also assumed informality was constant across um, households and all sectors. So there was a lack of data on whether indirect taxes are, are paid on household purchases, mean, whether, whether this means like it simplifies the assumption. Um, and this led to some distorted distributional, you know, patterns, unfortunately. So if, um, an example is of this was, if poor households were likely, were more likely to, um, if poor households are more likely to purchase from an informal sector and not pay VAT or NHL, which is um, VAT or National Health Insurance Levy, um, the tax incidents results in gas tax well, was underestimating how progressive the um, BAT or NHL was in the model. Um, so the model was actually well uh, received by policymakers. And I'm happy to say that we still use it. It's still used. I don't work there anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> it's used every budget cycle to estimate the potential impact of tax policies before they are considered for input in the budget. And I think the most recent example of when it was used was when the VAT rate was increased recently from 12.5 to 15%. So the VAT rate was increased by 2.5% in the 2023 budget. Um, so the distribution analysis um, that came out of doing the simulation was that um, um, the VAT would be mildly progressive in that even though the increase did have an effect on poorer households, um, Ghana has a range of VAT exemptions that apply to raw foodstuff and pharmaceuticals. And the mild impact on poorer households was reflective of the fact that um, poorer households spend relatively more on food products and health and goods and services, which are mostly exempt in our VAT system anyway. So the VAT, I'm happy to say, after using the model, was the, the policy was passed, the policy reform was passed, and currently Ghana's VAT raises 15%. So yeah, the distribution analysis was very good in, in estimating how um, taxes impact people. And it also made a difference for whether we're coming, whether the policy was going to be in the budget or not. Thanks. Thank you. And so you could turn it to you in the, in the South Mode model. Could you tell us a bit about that and whether there's been demand for it and, and use of then the, the findings that, that um, have come out of studies using that model? Yes, so um, South Mode is a, is, a, is a family of tax benefit microsimulation models that um, is coordinated by UNU-WIDER. And they, uh, the most most of these models are freely available for for research and analytical purposes on the on the web page. So um, I'd like to raise three examples on, on how the how the analysis um, has been used for for to, to formulate policy. So the first is again from Uganda, and um, Uganda, like many other uh, developing countries, uh, also administers. Uh, what is called a presumptive tax on the small businesses and there was a reform uh, in for this uh, turnover tax system in 2020 and the uh, and it was um, uh, the Ugandan government asked um, us to, uh, to 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 do an analysis of the of the impacts of this reform on the basis of uh, 
of yucca mod, which is the tax benefit micro simulation model for Uganda. And the team found out that the, uh, that the reform led to, um, to a regressive uh, tax system within that group of taxpayers. And then they used um, um, uh, the model to, uh, to generate an alternative one that would raise the same revenue, but uh, with a simple structure uh, with, uh, with just a couple of progressive tax plans. So that was um, how, it, how it was used there. The second one um, is from Mozambique, where the, um, where the model was used to um, uh, simulate the impacts of, um, of an expansion of, of child benefits. Uh, and, and that was a very simple um, analysis that was conducted by a team uh, uh, consisting of, of a member, uh, of a staff member from, from the ministry. Uh, and also there was a UNICEF expert present. Uh, so there it was used to uh, then um, influence um, the polit political decision-making to, uh, to expand this, um, this, this child benefit in, I believe, 2022. And the third one is from, um, is from Zambia. But the government of Zambia uh, asked us to, to help them to, uh, to, to examine the, um, the impacts of, of a new cash plus uh, transfer program that they, or, or system that they, uh, that they were, were contemplating. And so what's cash plus? So that consists of um, harmonization of the various benefits that the government has. And then also uh, uh, implementing a, a, a floor benefit level, um, and, and and that was used to then evaluate whether the uh, whether that uh, benefit package would be successful in reaching the uh, the uh, the government's objective of of, of reducing poverty by twenty percent, and and the analysis showed that yes, it it. it it, it would contribute towards that poverty reduction, but it would only go halfway. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, give, I, be, I believe there, then the general message um, rising from both the Mozambican and then the Zambian simulation is that the, uh, in both of these cases, the poverty levels, the poverty is so widespread and, and, and deep, so that the, I mean, these sort of uh, expansions of the, of the cash transfer systems, yes, they do help, uh, but they are nowhere near to, to solving the poverty issues with the resources that are currently available for them. Okay, thank you, Luca. And Miguel, turning to you, and, and we've heard about the, sort of the different types of models, micro-simulation instruments, and how they've been put to use and informed policy change. In, in Based on your experience, what are some of the gaps, evidence gaps, and what tools could we be strengthening to help us understand and, and inform and guide policy, makes fiscal systems more, more progressive. Well, <clears throat> one of the things that we suffer on a daily basis is the, the in many contexts, the, the availability of data is very limited. You know? So for example, we all the, the, uh, the data and the tables that I just showed uh, are based on income. So we have very limited information about wealth. Know, for example, which is another component. And if you think about um, any model in which you look at the contribution of wage income vis-a-vis -vis profits at the contribution to GDP, you will see that over time, the contribution of profits has been growing up because of the way the financial system and in the way 
the economies are structured, no? And we really don't know so much about how well has been um, not only accumulated in terms of um, the way this being used and also how we can better tax those revenues, you know? So, and that really relates to the issue of tax evasion and tax avoidance, but also the fact that we really don't know too much about the distribution of wealth, you know? It's been improving, but for example, if you want to do some, some rigorous analysis, I can name, you know, the countries that in developing countries you have access to wealth, you know? So, and so the other thing is we really don't know so much about um, the heterogeneous effects of fiscal policies, both tax and expenditure, you know? So, and these effects are heterogeneous by different groups, you know, can be by gender, by age, by different, uh, by race or ethnicity. And these are related to historical and initial conditions, you know? So we don't really know so much about this, you know? especially in low and middle income countries. Um, and also uh, most of the evidence that we know so far relate to the short-term effects of different policy interventions. You know? So we know a, a little bit about how certain uh, policies have affected behaviors and also improve or, or reduce our ability to deal with inequality. But in fact, we don't really know so much about the longer term effects, the dynamics effects that those policies uh, can impact on the economy. So, there is also a lot of uh, um, gaps in these kind of areas. No? Mm. Yes. Why, thank you, Miguel. So let me open up to the audience if there are any questions, including the audience um, online. But I'll, I'll first have a go, see if there's anyone in the room that has any questions. You could perhaps briefly sorry, introduce yourself. Okay. Thank you. My name is David Navina. I work for the Nigeria Governors Forum. I'd like to first thank Laura for her presentation. I think it's really apt uh, at the height of uh, sovereign debt distress today for many low-income countries. Um, the question would be, what would be the best fiscal instrument to address you know, uh, social protection given the rise in inequality and poverty? But there are two specific questions, actually. How did you manage um like miguel said i think that has been in my head since you started the presentation the heterogeneity of one taxes um, um and that i mentioned 10 percent of the population in ghana paying taxes so there's a huge population outside that so the the beyond um formal institutions there's a huge population outside that group that's not captured informality of course if you look at 40 to 60 percent of the population how do you manage, you know, how do you manage the nuances between taxes with a small group, of course, formal data and transfers, transfers impacting a larger population um, outside, including those outside the tax net. And the second concern would be which would be actually the most um, optimal fiscal instrument. You mentioned subsidies with zero impact. There are also taxes and cash transfer, but the concern with cash transfer is what is the optimal cash and what is the optimal target population? And even given the fiscal headroom you have, you know, and the spread of poverty, do we really see cash transfers as really as an effective tool? And of course, the other issues around location, you know, culture and, and some of those issues, and even the administrative capacity, who's administering the cash transfer 
what data informs that? Is the ministry or the tax authority? I mean, there are lots of issues there. Hopefully, you can throw more light on some of those things. Yeah, lots of questions there too. Thank you. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll maybe have a go at answering some of them that can also point you then to, to uh, studies that, that have dealt with many of these questions because these are very uh, detailed questions. Are there any other questions in the room before we, we can come back to answering that? Sorry, can you pass them? Oh. Okay, thank you. Um, my name is Flora Miamba. I am um, from Tanzania. Uh, an expert on the issues of social protection and gender. And um, thank you for the presentation. Um, I have a question on um, the, like how, when you're calculating this um, impact or effects, like for countries, uh, like developing countries, most of uh, these cash transfer program, for instance, the financing is, um, largely like donor funded, uh, like in my country, we have a huge um, national level social protection, uh, social assistance program, which is the cash transfers, public works and all that. And I'll speak of that um, sometimes later. But uh, for now, the World Bank is financing it as a loan to the government. And the government is saying, yes, this is um, paid through people's taxes. And so, and they're paying at whatever, like is a loan, soft loan for like long period of time. Now, when we're calculating these um, effects, how, how does that work when it's not like direct taxes coming now from the citizens, it's a loan to the government paid um, later. How are we, how does that work? That puzzle has always been um, a problem to me, but I have also, wanted to um, just like contribute uh, from a study that we had um, conducted a few years back uh, in Tanzania on the taxes and citizens' uh, willingness um, to, 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 to pay taxes, the issue of trust. Um, so findings indicated just in support of what you had presented that um, citizens are happy to pay taxes um, faithfully if they know that the government is spending on some tangible projects that they can see. Otherwise, um, in my country and in many uh, developing countries, the tax system is quite uh, loose in terms of like, yeah, managing it, people evading taxes. And they said, if we know where it's going, we are happy to pay. Otherwise, if we don't, we can then kind of evade um, paying taxes. So when the conclusion came to say, um, um, some innovation or innovative um, strategies. You mentioned an example of um, taxing some behaviors like uh, cigarettes or like uh, tobacco. And um, so I, that came in my mind to say, now it depends. You can innovate and do some of these additional taxes, but if that is not clear on um, retaining it and uh, uh, transferring it into a uh, productive project, then it will be kind of a waste. So there has to be more that has to be done in terms of saying we are doing this strategy, but we need to make sure that we are um, addressing some of the issues like making the strong tax um, system so that this solution can work. So that's a contribution, not really like a question. Thank you. Thank you, Flora. So I think we'll, we'll, 
we'll come back to the speakers. I think we'll address the questions directly to the to the, the panel. I mean, we'll take turns in answering. Perhaps first Laura and Kyle, and then I'll pass to Andara before we go to Miguel and Luca. But just uh, coming back to questions around um, uh, incidents analysis and the kind of assumptions that need to be made. We've heard a bit about this already, but you might want to come back to some of those questions and then. Wider questions around different types of instruments, the administrative considerations around these. You might want to point to references that exist um, to that. Uh, uh, there's a question online also uh, around the Ghana micro simulation model. So some of the around more of the some of the technicality aspects. So we can then perhaps put you directly in touch um, to I think to discuss some of the details around around these tools. Uh, and then the somewhat political economy type question of coming back to the question of the social contract, willingness to pay tax, uh, and, and that potential sort of virtuous cycle between uh, tax, um, public services and public provision of services, uh, and, and, and trust and willingness to pay tax. But Laura, I'll, I'll hand over first to you, if, if you could all briefly address a selected yeah. set of these questions. So I think I, I, I touch on different points raised um, so far. So I think the point about um, how do we go from taxing, from getting revenues from 10% of the firms and 10% of the workers in a country and aiming to finance cash transfers to people that don't pay taxes. I think it's a really important one. Um, it relates to social preferences, to, to many different um, factors affecting this and thinking about this problem dynamically as countries grow and how they grow and how they develop their institutions and their social contracts. So I think to some extent, some of these countries have economic structure um, that means that a lot of these workers uh, working firms that are very small they are not very productive, they earn very low wages, and ideally, as countries develop, firms will become larger, more productive, will pay, uh, and will become a better withholding agent of the revenue authority to, to um, tax workers. So as long as these workers earn enough income to be paying income tax, um, so that they are not poor. So I think the transition to that is tricky, it's difficult as we all know. And I think you have to, it's important to have the bigger picture in mind and try to think where you're going and try to build the tax base, the social contract for today, financing cash transfers um, for people that um, are very poor. Um, and, and it is difficult, we know it is difficult, but I think it's something that we have been debating because we don't think it's very fair that some people um, are so, capture so much of the income and pay, they do pay a lot of taxes, but they also accrue a very, very, I didn't show this, these figures, but like they, they account for a very big share of the total income generated. So these are discussions we have to, um, continue having and building consensus and, and ways of growing, how we grow, how we distribute this grow, growth, um, and, and hence the tax base will change and 
people will start paying more taxes across the income distribution. Having said that, in many lower income countries, many uh, households and, and, and individuals on, lower, on the lower part of the distribution end up paying uh, taxes, as we discussed before, even personal income taxes, and the expected tax rates sometimes are higher than for people at the top. So um, this is also something to consider. Um, I, I won't talk a lot about how we implement cash transfers and whether, so there, the, we can speak for a very long time. Francesca has uh, written um, a lot about cash transfers, uh, implementation, design, how this affects the different impacts can, cash transfers can have on income today, but also other types of outcomes. Uh, and behavior, so I, I we can share with you the links. And uh, others, many others, and others. Well. yeah, 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 yeah. Many others in the room as well, indeed. Um, I think, Flora, you were mentioning the issue of how, so these micro-simulation tools, they capture taxes paid today and some taxes, not all of the taxes. So they, they capture taxes paid um, by individuals or households on certain, on, or on consumption, but also on certain type of income, they miss out some of the tax revenues, but also um, the cash transfers can be financed not only by tax revenues, but other sources of revenues. And these other sources of revenues, as you said, in some countries uh, are super relevant and actually provide most of the um, funds to finance uh, cash transfers. And this is not captured in these micro simulation models, which are very complex and have a lot of assumptions, but at the same time, simplify many issues. So they don't capture distribution over time, usually an intergenerational uh, distribution of income. So we borrow today, someone will have to pay the interest rate, the, 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 the debt and the interest on that debt tomorrow. and. So these are all issues that are very important. I think there has to be more done in terms of how we incorporate um, social costs and benefits uh, between periods of time, even more so now that we, I think um, we realize how important it, uh, is what we do today to what is going to happen tomorrow in terms of um, resources uh, and populations, et cetera. So, we can discuss more later, but that's, that's what it is. Um, and I think, yeah, I think the taxing cigarettes, I think I think one of the issues with this type of taxes, the excise duties that you want to tax uh, to increase the price so that people do less of that behavior of consume less of that good. So in a way, you may impact people that, smoke a lot and so they don't want to be taxed of course but like as a society you want to discourage that type of behavior because it's bad not only for the person that cannot internalize their own cost going forward um, in their own lifetime but also for the health system for example so i would just make that argument very clear then the issue of how you use those tax revenues remains and is as important i think uh, whether you get this tax revenue from this type of excise duties or other type of, of sources. Um, yeah. For thank now. you, Laura. Kyle, over to you. Um, thank you. Um, 
Laura has covered a lot of a lot of what was asked, but I just wanted to pick up on one of the points that David made, and that was the point about sometimes many low-income countries don't have a lot of fiscal headroom or fiscal space. Um, I've been very fortunate through work on the Center for Tax Analysis in Developing Countries to be able to work alongside governments that that are thinking about tax reform on a, on a daily basis. Um, and it's often the case when you might have thought, done some thinking or some modeling about what would a more um, progressive design for a certain tax look like. Um, sometimes that entails revenue loss, at least in the short term. It's very difficult to go to a permanent secretary or minister of finance and get him or her to agree to something that you know, will be good for equity, but will cost the fiscus money in the short term, because ultimately, um, in the face of debt distress, fiscal deficits, um, that can end up trumping um, redistributive aims. And that's a shame. Um, that doesn't have to be the case. I think where there's more work going on on benefit tax benefit simulation models that look at the system as a whole, you can think, okay, if I change one instrument, how do I rebalance that on the other side to kill those two birds with, um, with the one stone? Um, a more progressive, a more redistributive system does not necessarily have to mean revenue loss, but sometimes a hyper-focus or an individual focus on one instrument and not looking at the system as a whole means that it might be more difficult to implement those um, sorts of reforms. And Dara, over to you for any points, any responses you want to give. Okay, so I think there was a question on tax incidents. Oh, no. Well, specific to Ghana, did, did, so there was a question, there's some online questions that I'll forward you, and other okay. questions on, yes, on the personal income tax, right, population. Um, okay, I'm looking in the chat box now. Tax. Okay, do you have documentations for the micro simulation in Ghana? Um, yes, Michael. Um, so I, if you can please put your email in the chat box, I will put you in touch with my colleagues at the Ministry of Finance. So. Um, they can you can discuss it with them. Okay, okay, and we'll come back to you in a minute for for sort of concluding point. Miguel, over to you for any responses you have. Uh, yes, uh, well, just just maybe briefly uh, about the case of Nigeria. No, so I think what you ask is a very important point, and I think income tax is just one tool for revenue collection. No? So uh, I think in, in Nigeria as well as in other countries, VAT plays a major role. So VAT in Nigeria collects about five percent of GDP. No? So. And the poor, proportionally or in relative terms, pay a much larger share in terms of their disposable income than the richest. You know? So they actually contribute to finance different social policies, including cash transfers. So they actually contribute indirectly you know, to the pot. But one of the things that can actually substantially improve the way uh, revenue collection can be implemented and linked to social policy is to take advantage of the infrastructures that are built around these policies. You know? So in several countries, for example, there is the attempts to link uh, the tax revenue uh, authorities with, for example, the, the databases and systems that exist, and also with the banking sector that is being gradually used to pay cash you know, or social welfare benefits to not only to deliver cash, but also to monitor taxation no? so and of course the the people in the lower end of the income distribution they don't pay any income tax but nevertheless they are in the system no and there are substantial efforts in several countries to improve and use uh, information systems to do that no so i think there's a lot of scope nigeria 
I know has uh, has been very entrepreneurial in in these areas. No, so in Lagos, for example, the you know Nigeria is very heterogeneous too. No, so but also there are things about su subsidies. Nigeria has the fuel subsidy that you know the Ministry of Finance in 2011 tried to undo, and there were these massive uh, uh, demonstrations against this policy, and then. The, the, the Ministry of Finance decided to, to step back, no? So, you know, the, the, the depends, it goes, it goes back to what uh, Laura was mentioning about the political economy aspects, no? So usually the middle class are more upfront, they have more voice, and, you know, this also affects the way tax or fiscal systems take shape, no? And can I just quickly mention? Yeah, sure, but, sure. So about Tanzania, I think uh, this is uh, the, the question about how to finance, um, you know, the instruments that the government is contracting with the World Bank is a very important question. Also, no? and if you look at the, the trajectory of Sub-Saharan Africa, the World Bank has been the main financer of cash transfers or social protection in general, no? providing to about two thirds of the financial resources. And one of the interesting things about this is that they come in, in the form of uh, debt instruments, not grants. No? which is also, I think, positive in a way, because means that governments are taking up ownership of these initiatives. And there are multiple things, of course, to finance uh, those debt instruments. In the case uh, of Tanzania, uh, there is uh, significant uh, revenues coming from natural resource uh, income. No? So, uh, but certainly, you know, going back to the systems, how you connect uh, expenditure on these transfers and the way the, the country can collect revenues is very important. And uh, but I think it's, it's, it's actually, I, I see it as a positive step uh, to internalize this into the system through that instrument rather than to get grants. And, and there is lack of institutionalization of these policies. No, I think it's a positive step, but I understand your concern, no? <laughs> yeah. Can I just follow up on Thank you. Just following on, uh, on your comment. So we have had a, a tricky situation where um, in, like the World Bank, as you mentioned, uh, gives this as a, a loan, but the initial agreement with the government, um, I think many countries have done that, is that um, they will transition that um, so that the government takes over. At some point, then it will be like 100% government financed and all that. But then um, just a few years after that agreement, I think the initial agreement was like three years, actually, yes. The initial phase was like three years. And then when we go to the next phase, they agreed on certain amounts. You are going to give this contribution, this contribution amount, and then it phases out that way. But then the government failed um, to start like implementing those commitments. And when the discussion came, um, to even to the point where it was difficult to approve the second phase of the um, productive social safety net by the World Bank, um, the government argued that, you know, but we are already contributing because this is um, taxes. It will be paid by um, our taxes, citizens' taxes. So it kind of like when we, um, like there's a paper that we wrote analyzing that, um, uh, commitment and agreement and fulfilling that commitment. So it started well, but then later on the government said, but we are paying anyway. So this is all already our contribution. And it has delayed that um, 
take over by the government in a sense, which now worries us to say, um, until when? Uh, when are we going to get to the point where now the government is 100% financing this? Because the uh, initial strategy of um, transitioning and taking over seems like it hasn't started yet. But these kind of like uh, tricky arguments um, becomes difficult um, to understand. That's why I had asked um, in a way. Thank you. Thank you, Flora. I'll hand over to Yuka for any for any responses to the questions and issues that have been raised in the discussion now. Okay, so very little add to, to what has been said here. So, uh, but maybe just uh, on on two points that um, Flora raised. So the donor financing. So in principle, there's nothing wrong with the donor financing for for I'm all for official development assistance and its use for for these sort of purposes. Uh, but the, um, of course, I mean, the hope is that then the, um, uh, that the recipient economy grows and at the, at, at the same time, then the relative importance of donor financing will be, will be declining. So then it will be key to also invest in tax capacity to, um, to and the donors would be wise to also invest in tax capacity then uh, at the same time. Uh, and maybe also the second point is then related to um, uh, then to the, um, to the social contract and the willingness to pay. So, so certainly that's key. Uh, um, however, there are also some more technical issues in tax that don't really uh, rely on, the, on that social contract. So, and the, the withholding taxes are, are examples of this. So typical employees in, um, in, in, in advanced economies have very little leeway in terms of avoiding the tax because it's uh, withheld by the employer. And, and if this is to uh, increase, this, if this share is to increase in the developing countries as well, then that, that would be one way of, of broadening the tax base. And maybe there's a, then sort of some sort of cycle from that necessity to pay the tax to also uh, more investment in terms of monitoring on how the money is spent. Thank you. So I'm 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 mindful that we, there's a lot to say. I'm certainly containing myself, but uh, I'm also <laughs> mindful that we're eating into the break time. So I do have to ask a final question. This is a chance for a final uh, plea or message by our by our esteemed speakers. Just a one pointer, one minute max pointer on if there's one thing you would fix or change to the tax terms. I know it's a bit question but tax transfer system <laughs> to make it more equitable what would that be uh, and i'm going to start with yuka because <laughs> oh okay uh, what would that be uh, yeah that? this is this is unfair so yeah. i mean <laughs> uh, but i would like to raise one 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 point that was briefly touched upon but we haven't spoken much about it namely the quality of public services income transfers uh, uh, and the uh, especially education, because I'm very worried about the poor education results, and 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 and, and um, having those sort of skills is is key for 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 people to be productive workers. And without productivity, then there won't be lasting impacts on uh, on 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 their on the on the on the living standards of the bottom of the distribution. How to do that? I'm no expert, but I would just wanted to raise it here. That the, and Dara, over to you. Um, so there's a there's actually a question in the chat box, and I don't know if you want me to answer it. It's on the e levy. I think we'll have to answer that another time. We can. Hear that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so the one thing for me is um, hmm, 
I think it will be to better target people who are most vulnerable. Um, I want um, us to start using technology to improve our identification addressing system so that we can target only people who are most vulnerable and ensure that they're taken care of. Because that will make a cash transfer system more efficient, but also a way for government to save money. Um, like I mentioned earlier, the current proper intervention system, um, proper interventions mean that people who are even well off benefit from these um, interventions. So in the 2023 budget, for instance, the amount that was allocated for free senior high school was 2.9 billion CDs. And 2.9 billion CDs is the equivalent of about 200 million pounds. And um, everybody who, even people who can afford it are benefiting from this intervention, right? But if we better target people who are most vulnerable, um, governments can also save some money. And then these, and this amount can be used towards other development, crucial development objectives, while at the same time, making sure that people who are vulnerable are taken care of. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Lara. Miguel, over to you. Uh, well, thank you. So I think uh, just for me, um, I think it's important to you know, improve, for example, information systems to connect expenditure or the revenue side to the expenditure side. There's a lot of work to do that. And also improve the coordination or the international coordination to deal with tax evasion and tax avoidance that we haven't discussed much. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a major source of revenue, uh, which includes tax loopholes that exist across the board. Mm -hmm. no? So I think yeah, these are maybe the main. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah. You have already said so many of the important things. I, I'm a bit obsessed with the importance of taking the system as thinking about the system as a whole. And, and I think there is so much scope to improve each of the instruments while you think of the system as a whole. And I, I actually um, didn't mention much about VAT, for example. I think VAT is underutilized everywhere as a source of revenue, efficient revenue source to finance uh, investment in education and uh, in health that is usually very important to, to, to reduce um, income um, out of pocket expenditure, particularly relevant, relevant for lower income households. But as Yuka said, it's also investing in opportunity for tomorrow, like workers, etc. So I think you can think of removing many exemptions, for example, exemptions to food um, and, and other goods that are thought, um, providing exemptions to VAT targets poor um, health, poor households, but actually most of the revenue foregone accrues to the richest uh, households. And that's such a waste of public resources when we have so many other uh, instruments to target these uh, more vulnerable households better. So again, system as a whole for me, don't work in silos. <laughs> Point taken. And Kyle, any final message from you? Probably one final message is in, in the design of tax and transfer policies, adhere to certain principles. So don't, for example, to go back to the example I mentioned, um, don't, for example, design a personal income tax that makes the poor poorer. Um, you create disincentives to enter the formal labor force, and that has implications down the line for the fiscal contract, et cetera, et cetera. So you can, you can adopt some very um, straightforward, simple principles and try to adhere to those and ensure that you don't make the poor poorer by wanting to declare or formalize. 
Thank you so much. So I think already from this final, uh, you know, pitch, five uh, points we've had, we already have a lot to take forward and work on. Uh, but first, let's have a break before we come to the next session, which will be specifically on gender inequality, a really um, important and, and exciting topic. Uh, so we'll take a 10 minute break. Uh, for those of you that are online, please stay tuned. You'll see a banner, but we'll be, then, we'll be leaving the room briefly and then coming back. Uh, thank you so much to our speakers. Uh, we hope uh, even Andara, that you're online, that those of you that are here that will you know, stay on for the next session because there are important links here, of course, uh, and we hope to, to take the conversation forward all together. Thank you.